This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. I'm Greg Dalton, and today on Climate One, we're talking about almonds and lawns. The fierce California drought has sparked a debate about the landscaping in our yards, the food in our kitchen, and our bathroom habits. Californians are conserving water, but is it enough? Will the drought permanently change our California lifestyle? Over the next hour, we will talk about agriculture, cities, public opinion, and what officials are doing to prepare for a dry 2016 We also will talk about the connection between burning gasoline and other fossil fuels that scientists say is making the drought even more harsh. We're joined at the Commonwealth Club today by four leaders in California water. Ellen Hannock is water director at the Public Policy Institute of California. Felicia Marcus is chair of the California State Water Resources Control Board. Paul Wenger is president of the California Farm Bureau Federation and... Marguerite Young is board member of the East Bay Municipal Water District. Please welcome them to Climate One. Felicia, um, I'd like to ask you, uh, begin with you, droughts come and go. We're used to droughts in California. Is this one different, or is this just like another cycle? We ride it out, tighten our belts for a little while, and then we go on with our lives. Well, this is the biggest wake-up call in modern times. This is the worst we've had. There have been some years that may have technically had uh, a little more precipitation, but we haven't had one uh, where we also had so much heat that we lost our snowpack, which is a third of storage on average as it refills reservoirs and replenishes surface waters. We also have millions more people dependent on that water than the last time we had a big one in the 70s or in the 20s. Uh, And we've got more agricultural production dependent on every drop precisely because ag has become more efficient and can produce more with every drop. And we have more endangered and threatened species than we've ever had before who can't deal with droughts the way they could in nature, either because uh, they're so weak and depleted or because we've altered their habitat so much that their refugia is gone. So it's serious on just about every front you can think of. I need a drink after that. Okay. Um, uh, Ellen, Ellen Hannock, uh, you survey California uh, population attitudes. Are, where are Californians on this? Do they, do they recognize the severity of the drought and are they changing their behavior? So I think one of the interesting, most interesting questions that gets asked in the PPIC statewide survey is a completely open-ended one that just asks people what is the biggest, what's their top issue for Cal- what do you think the top issue is for California and just to give you a sense of how much things have heated up in, in the public mind, last May so May 2014 already after the emergency declaration 14% said that water or drought was the biggest deal but the economy was still a bigger deal for them. As of just last month, this past May, it was 39% that said water or drought. It's just unheard of that Californians think that's such a, a big deal. And so, you know, I spin this in, in, a, in an op- opportunity kind of way, saying that this is a, a real chance for people to, to 
kind of heed the wake-up call and, and really make some changes that we need to make for the long term. Paul Wenger, farmers obviously live and die by water. They know it's a big deal. What's the impact on California's agricultural <clears throat> economy right now? Well, it's a huge impact because uh, we do, you know, a lot of folks might grow almonds and walnuts. We're, I'm a third generation in Modesto, just over the hill. Uh, two of my sons farm with me. When Grandpa came here in 1910, it was, he was milking 70 cows by hand. We went into uh, raising dairy beef for folks to put in their locker, and uh, we watched the markets. The markets today are almonds and walnuts, and so we're almonds and walnuts. And a lot of other people are, uh, not surprisingly, driven to walnuts. Nobody cared about being a walnut grower. My dad was getting 15 cents a pound, and we are getting 50 cents a pound for our almonds. But today, as we're into a global marketplace, and we're seeing the middle class is growing at phenomenal rate around the world, they are beating a path to our door here in California. And we'll talk a little more about almonds and hedge funds and other things later. Uh, Marguerite Young, uh, some people might say, well, I tightened my water uh, use last time and I may have been punished for it. So tell us about how this time is different in terms of what you've learned to, to try to drive conservation and not penalize people who do conserve. The fact is that when water is scarce, it still costs urban utilities the same amount to put the water to customers' homes. So prices inevitably are going to need to increase. At East Bay Mud, we've instituted a 25% drought surcharge. What we're asking that's on the amount of water that they use. So if you use less, you're still going to get the surcharge, but it'll be much less. Uh, What we learned from the last drought in 2008, 2009, we had an allocation system that made it very difficult for people in large households who were conserving what Today, does that mean? Allocation system means X gallons X per... X gallons per household or you pay more. So now okay. we have a, a tiered, our regular uh, three-tier rate system, the drought surcharge of 25% on top of that. And what we're telling people to do is use 35 gallons per person per day inside and then follow the outdoor watering restrictions. What that will mean is that some people don't need to do a thing. In fact, they're already doing better than that, far better than that. Um, and some people will need to do much, much more. The, our customers who are using 1,000 gallons per household per day, we're looking to them to really cut back a lot. Let's talk about outdoor landscaping. A lot of the water use is outdoors. Uh, Felicia Marcus, I remember you saying one time that as Americans moved west from the Midwest where there's abundant water, we replicated the kind of rolling lawns that people enjoy in Michigan. My family moved to California in the 60s from from Michigan and put a lot of effort into getting the little patch of lawn in the front yard because that's what people did. That meant the sort of middle-class lifestyle. Are those days over, lawns in California? Well, it depends on the lawn. I think um, bright green lawns, even in a drought, maybe not so great, not uh, not necessary. Um, Increasingly, people are uh, lining up like mad to get the turf rebates that many communities have put out to make it easier to transition to a more drought-tolerant landscape. In many cases, again... $3 or something for a square foot In of- L.A., it's pretty good because it's $2 for Met, and then they add a $1.75, um, and it varies around the state. But they recently went... Started out to be an $8 million program a year. Then it was 20 during the drought. They had so much demand, they took it to 40, then to 80, and they just went for 350 for a game-changing sort of moving it. And that's because of public demand. So in many cases, people have also, the lawn came with the house. It, it doesn't have the same meaning for everyone. And, and many people didn't realize 
if that you know there are different kinds of lawns you can put in native grasses that don't take as much water and frankly people routinely overwater that's what we found is that people are routinely overwatering their lawns figuring more is better and instead they're watering the three feet under their lawn a lawn is actually pretty hard to kill it may turn brown out of season but it'll come back once it rains i mean Obviously, the permanent transformation, if folks aren't in love with their lawn, is a, a better way to save because folks use 30, 50, sometimes 80 percent of residential water use is outdoors. And that's you know hardly the most um, important thing. It's that indoor public health and safety, being able to water your trees. Trees are important. I always say even if you have a little lawn in the backyard so you can play ball with a kid and they can fall down, that's a functional lawn. It just doesn't have to look like St. Andrews all the time. <laughs> Actually, I was watching the U.S. Open recently, and the, law, the fairways, in, 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 I think it was in Washington State, were very quite brown. It was a whole different thing. It looks different on TV. I think it's a sign of, uh, of things to come. Marguerite Young, East Bay, a lot of uh, lush landscapes out there in the East Bay. Um, how are the lawns doing? Uh, well, we have a very ambitious uh, turf replacement program. Last year, we replaced uh, our customers replaced um, half a million square feet of lawn. This year, we're on a pace to replace one and a half million square feet of lawn, and our rebate is much more modest, 50 cents a square foot. Um, we will be looking at whether that should go up, but right now, that's, there's a lot enough motivation that uh, we, we can barely keep pace with uh, the rebates we're processing. We also have rebates to help people keep, lawn, uh, keep landscape by gray water, uh, you know, use, taking your laundry water and uh, moving it out into the garden. Uh, let's talk about gray water. It used to be illegal in some places because they have concerns about standing water and, and disease and, and uh, mosquitoes, that sort of thing. Ellen Hannock, is gray water, uh, is that something Californians are ready to accept? It's kind of cutting edge. I think it is. I think it's <clears throat> also worth kind of keeping it in perspective, though, too, because to some extent, you know, in a place where that gray water would just be going, you know, so you run off from your shower or from your dishes, if that was just going to the wastewater treatment plant and then going out into the ocean, um, then, yeah, it's wasted water and it's not being reused. But more and more urban systems are developing ways to reuse their treated wastewater. And then that can be quite efficient to just have that gray water go into that system and, and be, re- be reused in the, you know, redistributed. So it's, it's not always lost. It depends on where you live. Exactly. Paul Langer, recycling water in agriculture, is that <clears throat> happening? All that, uh, think of all those flooded fields, uh, flood irrigation out there? Yeah, it's recycling because it goes through the system. Those molecules of water don't go anywhere. In fact, um, we've conserved our way into this problem. And where in the past we had a lot of our sandy loam soils, University of California would even tell you that on Hanford sandy loam, if you flood irrigate, uh, 30 to 40% of that water is used by your tree, if it's a tree less, if it's a corn plant or an alfalfa plant, once it's below the root zone, it's in the bank. It's in the soil profile, and it's sitting there waiting for rainfall or other things. It's not going to be there for the sun uh, to evaporate it. It's sitting there. It doesn't go anywhere. Those water molecules are filling that soil profile. What we've done today is we have spoon-fed through micro-irrigation, which is good to help us conserve, but I haven't seen anybody conserve their way to plenty. Um, You know, we have to talk about the dialogue The dialogue has to go to 39 million people in the state of California are surviving on a water infrastructure designed for 18 million people. And so we can conserve our way through dry times. We've done it before. 
Um, but a lot of folks say, oh, when you flood irrigate a field, you're losing that water. I'm banking that water in the ground. That's where the groundwater comes from for wells. And so we are recycling. Like I like to tell folks that we're in the valley. When I, we live on a, we have a, a well and so on a septic system. So we pull the water up. We drink it. We flush the toilet. We do the shower. It goes through the leach line. It goes down. My kids live a mile to the west of me. They pick it back up in their pump. <laughs> <laughs> they shower on it. They drink it. Kind of an inheritance of sorts, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> There's okay. this magic touch of so nature just, somehow in between. It, but it's, it works. It goes through the soil profile, yeah, soil. and that water recycles, recycles, and it's completely being reused. Let's talk about groundwater. Big deal in California. There's been a lot of press lately, uh, Felicia Marcus, about overpumping of groundwater, sinking uh, <clears throat> levels. Uh, that's what's sort of drawing on our banking, uh, our savings account for the future. Uh, is California overdrafting groundwater supplies? Well, it depends on where you are. It's hard to do anything across the board in California because it's it's different mm-hmm. depending on where you are. Certainly there are some basins that are overdrafted, but it's there for drought. Uh, the drought legislation, the historic drought legislation that we got passed last year is to prepare for future droughts, not to cut off the support during this drought. I mean, I, I think well-managed groundwater basins, and there are many in the state, make plans to make deposits in that water bank, so to speak, uh, during wet years. They let it seep in. They let extra seep in so that it's flush during a dry year. That's the way you manage a groundwater basin well, there are some areas that have had, in some ways, a run on that as people have sunk deeper and deeper wells, and you were having essentially like an arms race with wells where you had the guy mm-hmm. with the biggest pump uh, winning, and you were starting to see, it's not an environmental issue necessarily, you started to see um, neighbor versus neighbor wells running dry, and I think that created a fair amount of interest in figuring out how to get ahead of that curve, and the legislation gives tools to locals as well as certain metrics to do it over time. But um, you, you, you are going to draw down a groundwater basin in a time of drought to avoid uh, economic and uh, human hardship, but you got to repay the bank. Paul Wenger, there is an arms race with uh, drilling in, in the Central Valley, and there's sort of a use it today, worry about tomorrow mentality. Are some of the farmers put themselves in a tight box or the incentive that I better use it because if I don't use it, you're going to use it? Um, I don't think that's really the case. I know we we say there's this use it or lose it mentality. There is that, but ironically, some of it comes from the government. I know uh, over in the Modesto, Sanislaus County area, Oakdale Irrigation District has been called on the carpet for selling water that they had on New Maloney's Reservoir and selling that to other people and then pumping groundwater. But if they don't use the surface water, they lose it. But that's a mandate from the government telling them, you have an allotment for this year of surface water. If you can't use it, then you're going to lose it. So what are you going to do? You're going to sell it, and you're going to pump groundwater. So when government tells you sometimes you shouldn't be doing something, why don't you take a look at who's causing it? Um, We know that if we overwater our trees or our plants, they'll die. Um, It's from fungal diseases, pythium, phytophthora, and other things. I don't think anybody wants to drink more water than what you would need. And it's the mm-hmm. same thing with our plants, and they can't get up and run off. Mm-hmm. So today we can monitor, we do leaf analysis where we put a pressure bomb on a leaf to see how much the pressure of retention of the, of the, so, of the uh, water in the leaf to find out. And we want it in a slightly stressed mode. So the technology we're using today to give our plants the right amount of water, and I like to say getting the best crop per drop is phenomenal, probably the best anywhere in the world. Margaret Young, is government part of the problem? 
I wasn't expecting that question. <laughs> I mean, a, as an elected official, as a, as a part of government, I, I see uh, our role as being to be the, you know, the listening board of what our constituents and our customers need and to be the delivery mechanism for... Uh, having the policy discussions that we need to figure out how to deal with our water future. I mean, East Bay Mud is, uh, serves 1.5 million people, 325,000 households approximately, um, and we have a watershed that extends from the very top of the Sierra down to the bay, and we deal with wastewater as well. So we're kind of a one-stop shop. Um, and so I think of us as being... Uh, you know, our government function is to be the stewards of a water re- of a watershed resource and to use it as wisely as we can and to educate, you know, our customers about that stewardship job that we have for, for ourselves and for future generations. If you're just joining us, we're talking about almonds and lawns at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and my guests are Felicia Marcus, chair of the State Water Board, Paul Wenger, president of the California Farm Bureau Federation, Marguerite Young from East Bay Municipal Water District, and Ellen, Helen Hannock, director of the Water Policy at the Public Policy Institute of California. You can join this conversation on Twitter using our handle at Climate One. Ellen Hannock, tell us some success stories. Who's done a really good job of being smart on water in California, being more efficient? So, you know, what's really interesting and kind of an untold success story of this drought is that it's not having as bad an economic impact as you might think. I mean, you've heard from from my fellow panelists that the population has gotten much bigger since the last severe drought. Um, We've got more needs in agriculture with permanent crops and so on. And and yet, if you look at our urban areas, they're doing pretty well. Um, Felicia and her colleagues have been nudging them some uh, to, to sort of think really in terms of preparing for in case this is not the end of the drought, and if the drought lasts a few more years, it's going to be worth it to them to keep some of their water in the bank um, and kind of be prepared for that by reducing water use now. So that's part of why everybody's been asked to to reduce water use across the state. But I think that the urban agencies really learned a lot from... We had a long drought from the late 80s to the early 90s where a lot of folks in 91 were really scared about serious rationing. And that just was a wake-up call, and it led to major investments in all kinds of things to diversify the portfolio, to create better interconnections with other agencies to reduce water use to save more and that's really paid dividends now so we're you know we're, we're not we're not out of trouble completely in the urban areas but we're we're in much better shape than we would have been I want to go now to our lightning round ask a series of uh, yes or no uh, questions uh, to our panelists uh, starting with Paul Wenger is it time to revive the 1970s campaign encouraging people to shower with a friend? Yes or no? <laughs> you want a yes or no answer? I guess it would depend upon the friend. <laughs> if enough. it's your spouse, you're safe. If it's not, you're probably in trouble. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Wise answer. Um, Felicia Marcus, California water prices overall are too low. Yes or no? Yes and no. Depends. Depends on where um, you are. Poor people tend to pay more than richer people, which is unfortunate. Ellen Hannock, water is such a small portion of household expense that people don't really respond to price changes, that price raising water prices won't do much. 
agree or disagree? Disagree. Uh, Marguerite Young, in the next 10 years, some Californians will sell their house and move because of lack of water. Disagree. Felicia Marcus, uh, name and shame is an effective tool for shaping how people use water. Not true. Ellen Haddock. But competition does work. Social But not name and shame isn't. It's just people want to know how they're doing compared to others. They want to be more clever than others. Ellen Hannock, in the last 10 years, Los Angeles has done more on water efficiency than San Francisco. Oh, that's like so detailed. I, 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 they've both done really well, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> I like the Giants and I like the Dodgers. I like okay. the Giants. And no, the, and and the, the, Red the, the Giants are a better team. Okay. Okay. Right. okay. <laughs> you, know, you know where you're sitting. Okay. Um, <laughs> Marguerite Young, the agricultural industry has been slow to invest in getting more crop for drop. Depends on where you are. Paul Wenger, Sacramento should accelerate deployment of water meters for homes and businesses that do not have any water meter. I think metering is coming for everybody. Including farmers? Yeah. Uh, Ellen Hannock, liberals gripe more than conservatives about water conservation. Who wrote these questions? <laughs> there's, there's, I looked at your website this morning, and you talked about how San Franciscans, and there's actually some survey oh, there. But that's not, well, okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> that's a question about, do you think that your neighbors are doing enough to save water, which is actually a way of asking you whether you're doing enough. But since mm-hmm. people don't um, like to shame say say bad things about themselves that they're it's easier for them to say it about their neighbors so what what <laughs> especially what the, liberals what right? that means is that <clears throat> folks in the bay area are just obsessed with water conservation and it's true people are showering in buckets and then take you know i mean it's yeah, yeah. People, people are worried about water felicia marcus snow skiing is a dying sport no but you <laughs> but Except the ski year. resorts in the Sierra are retooling to be year-round family destinations That's for a, good reason as they look at what will come with climate change. So that was a no, yes answer. Okay. Yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> Cali- uh, Marguerite Young, California would be crazy to not consider reforming its antiquated system of water rights. I think this is a important opportunity to really look at whether we've got a system that can get us through the next hundred years. Last question. Uh, Paul Wenger, salmon are fish that lead amazing lives, taste good, and are good for you. <laughs> I'd like her question. <laughs> I bet I you would. Yeah. I, I love to fish. I love salmon. Um, but there is a parable that if you teach a man, if you give a man a fish, you fed him for a day teach a man to fish. You fed him for a lifetime. We have 39 million people in the state of California. If we all go grab a fish a day, we're out of fish. And so we need to provide for the needs, not only the 39 million people in California, 330 million people in the United States, but the 7 billion plus people in the world. In California, agriculture is a very major component for that. That's the end of our lightning round. How do they all do? That was fun. They did pretty well. (laughs) But... 
But Paul Wenger, what would you say to someone who says that agriculture uses 80% of the water in California and it's 2% of the economy, that there's a disproportionate use of, of a vital resource for that part of the economy? Yeah, I think if you look at the, at the farm gate value of most countries, the world of agriculture is 2%. If you look at the tourist industry as the gross domestic product, we looked the other day, it's 2.5%. You think tourism is important the state of California, it's 2.5%. As I've told people before, that's what the value is. But once it turns over, I had a reporter from Sacramento. He's talking about almonds. Blue Diamond, they are about 30% of the almond industry. I said, what do you think they pay in property taxes in Sacramento and in Salida and in Turlock? What do you think the hundreds of people that have year-round jobs pay in income taxes and property taxes for their homes? What jobs would replace them? And so we're looking at the 2% that comes off the farm, whether or not that farmer is making money, it's that 2% value that is there. And as the sixth largest agricultural economy in the world, what we're doing is nothing short of phenomenal. The 80%, we don't. It depends, and it's a very difficult thing to monitor because of groundwater. Mm-hmm. But when we had the meeting with the governor, in round numbers, of the 200 million acre feet that fall on an average year in California, 200 million acre feet of water, um, 200 million acres a foot deep in water, uh, we capture between 75 and 78 million acre feet of that of that, 50% will either go to the environment for different flows, depending on the year, as we discussed earlier, it depends. 40% will go to agriculture, 10% to urban. Ellen Hannock, does agriculture do enough? Do they get favorable treatment from Sacramento? I think you have to remember, and I think the administration has been mindful of this, that ag is a business. And so the water used in agriculture is is for productive purposes. And, and a lot of people kind of reacted to the governor's announcement back in, in April that was calling for mandatory cuts in cities and said, you know, this is unfair. Ag is, is being treated unfairly. Ag had been cut already. Ag has been cut more exactly. this year again. And in cities, the cuts that are, are really being talked about now are getting the outdoor water use down. And that's um, something we can do and still have a great quality of life, and it's not going to hurt the economy. In fact, it's probably really helping the landscape business at the moment. <laughs> yeah, no, they're supportive, so, actually. Uh, Margaret Young, how would should water ref, uh, rights be changed in the state? What are the questions that should be asked? That's uh, kind of the third rail in California water politics. Australia. I don't have a law degree, so I'm, I'm going to try to stay <laughs> a bit away from that question. I, I think that we need to, as a state... I mean, we are, I'll I'll grab Felicia's line here, uh, we're all in this together, and that we are looking at a hotter climate. We may be looking at a drier climate. It may be a wetter climate, but a wetter and warmer climate. Water in California is changing, um, and we aren't prepared for it yet. And I think if we don't put everything on the table to figure out whether century, uh, you know, third rail, century-old water rights are somehow sacrosanct and then everything else is up for grabs, it just doesn't, it's not going to work. We're not going to get there. So we need to figure out a collaborative process. I mean, we've worked out at East Bay Mud uh, something um, that's been more than 20 years in the making to do a uh, groundwater banking project with San Joaquin farmers, where if we're going to the pilot phase, if we're successful... We'll be able to store water in wet years in the groundwater basin, recharging that overdrafted basin, 
and then having the ability to draw that water in dry years, increasing supply reliability for everybody, and reducing or eliminating our need to do any increase in our, uh, you know, our dam on the McCullamy <clears throat> River or otherwise. So increasing storage without building a dam. And there are plenty of innovative solutions like that to be had all over the state. And I think if we aren't talking about, you know, the use it or lose it doctrine or, or other ways to measure and value use, we're missing a huge opportunity. Marguerite Young is a director uh, at the East Bay Municipal Utility District. We're talking about the drought at Climate One. Felicia Marcus. Well, I just think there's, there's something that I think in some ways headlines are divisive and don't help us figure out how to resolve these problems because there are win-wins in terms of how to steward our water molecules more intelligently. I mean, Paul talked about the need to meter. If we can meter and measure better than we do, we, we don't measure and uh, and have our system established as well as the other Western states by and large. So we could tighten up the system we have. We wouldn't necessarily need to change it to tighten it up and then encourage these win-wins where people are using the same water for multiple benefits. There are drought angels out there in agriculture who have done all kinds of things to help fish. Um, It doesn't make the headlines, but there's all kinds of innovative things they're doing to figure out how to let water flow that will help fish and then pick it up later. There are, there are all kinds of those things happening. I think in the urban arena, um, the division between urban and agriculture, which the 80-20, or if you do 50-40-10, which has its own issues, has an issue, is, is, a, is misleading because agriculture grows food that people in urban areas eat. I, I like to say that frequently a person in L.A. has more of a connection on a day-to-day basis with the Central Valley farmer that grows the fruits and vegetables and nuts they eat than the jerk down the block who's overwatering their lawn, And but they just don't know it. And I think one of the interesting things in modern civilization is that we've done such a good job in our large urban areas in particular of bringing water hundreds of miles so they can take it for granted as it comes out the tap. Many people are hundreds of miles. They don't know where their water comes from. They trust it in large part. So it becomes a very challenging thing and easy for people to pick on almonds or something else. They also don't know where their food comes from. And it's again, it's a miracle of modern civilization that people can take for granted that there's going to be food at the supermarket. But the fact is a farmer grew it somewhere. And so dividing the water that way, I think, doesn't help us figure out what we need to do and get to what Mar- Marguerite was saying is figure out how do we come together and find those solutions so that we can use the water we do have more efficiently for multiple purposes. And there are urban areas in particular all over the uh, state that have phenomenal plans to integrate flood control, water supply, water quality, use their groundwater basins, recycle their water so that they're more self-reliant just as they have since the 70s. There's nowhere to go from up there. And then there are these partnerships between urban and ag and between fish and farmers and groups that that are actually popping up all over, and we need to figure out how to encourage that. Felicia Marcus is chair of the California State Water Board. This is Climate One. Uh, I'd like to talk about, Felicia and and Paul, if a Californian is concerned about their water footprint, what food should they eat and what food should they avoid? (laughs) Right? I mean... Almonds have been villainized a lot. This is quite apart from how your digestive system works. There are some um, people who don't have many choices. I do, but I'm sensitive to And you like portable protein. You eat I almonds. I like almonds a lot. And, you know, almonds have a very low water footprint for protein, frankly. They, and it doesn't spoil. 
I mean, there are communities that have been able to get protein after disasters, whether it's Fukushima, right, Mm -hmm. or places. So just picking on a particular crop is taking a piece of of things and not understanding the larger circle. My biggest eco-sin, I will admit it here, I'm sorry, In-N-Out Burgers. (laughs) I'm sorry. That's my biggest eco-sin. But I'm not saying everybody should stop eating meat, but that is a bigger footprint. But I save water everywhere I can. And then I have that In-N-Out burger lettuce wrap. <laughs> but I mean, if everybody does as much as they can, you don't have to like, sh- see, I confess my ecosystem, I feel better now. Okay. But you, everybody doesn't have to do everything. You just need to be sort of uh, mindful. You want people to eat healthy fruits and vegetables. Walnuts are five gallons. Should people not eat walnuts? Walnuts are really good for you. Paul Wenger, you're an almond farmer. We put a post on Facebook of almonds with little devil horns on them, and it got all sorts of attraction. People, a lot of people love to hate almonds. And, and tell us about the hedge funds that are going big in on almonds in the Central Valley. Yeah, there are a lot of uh, hedge funds probably, and I've gotten in trouble by making the comment that there's probably almonds being planted where it's too high, too dry, um, and uh, maybe the weather isn't conducive to having a crop every year. They're planting almonds probably where I, as a grower and other growers, would not do and invest in our own dollars. Um, I would imagine there could be some people in this audience today. I know there's people in government who, on one hand, say you shouldn't be planting almonds where you're planting them, and yet they're invested in these hedge funds. They're doing the very thing they say we shouldn't be doing. And so we are a free society that says, you know, you can... um, you have the right to go and do capitalistic ideas, whether it's start a restaurant or grow a farm. I do think that there are some tax advantages given to hedge funds that I don't have as an individual mm. grower that allow them to do some things that I don't get to do. And uh, They pay income tax of 15%, pretty sweet. Who else gets yeah, that? And, then, yeah. and the write-offs, I think, talking to some accountants, they might have some benefits there that I don't necessarily mm. get. Um, <laughs> but when you ask what foods um, should mm-hmm. we not be growing I'm not growing almonds just to dump them out in the heat. Right. Uh, the folks in this room, the folks in your listening audience, it's what they buy. It was funny. One day um, I got a nasty letter from some comment I made in the media, and this lady said, she said, I just thought you were very uh, curt in your answer. And she goes, I just wish I didn't have to drink this almond milk. And she said, <laughs> I just wish I could quit eating almonds, but they're very important to my diet. And so I can't stop, but I wish I could stop. And so she's making the choice. She didn't like my response, and my response was, it's a free country, and people can do what they can do. I'm not being curt by saying, hey, um, you know, I'm going to take advantage of the water. We've been cut back 60%. We share a reservoir with the city of San Francisco called Don Pedro Reservoir. We were allowed 16 inches of water this year. We went through six dry years between 88 and 93, and we were never limited to that we were limited to 24 inches, and for elevated prices, you could buy extra acre feet for your crops. This year, 16 inches, you couldn't buy another inch. We're drilling our second well today because if I didn't have the wells hopefully coming online by the end of August, my crop will dry up. And we're talking about economic harm. I don't know anybody that cutting back, and I don't want to be uh, curt again about it, uh, but I don't know anybody that's had to cut back watering their lawn and had to refinance their home. Right. I know a lot exactly. of farmers that are refinancing their farms. If next year's a dry year, they will be insolvent. They will be out of business paying $2,000 an acre foot for water to try to get young trees through to next year, hoping that the good Lord gives them a wet year. And last time I looked, nobody ate their lawns. <laughs> right. You could, uh, though. 
Yeah. <laughs> Technically, <laughs> I suppose you could. Yeah. Marguerite Young, uh, 10 years ago, a researcher at UC Santa Cruz, Lisa Sloan, predicted the drought that we're seeing now. And she also said it could get more severe and talked, connected it to the melting sea ice, which is putting this column of warm air. Sometimes it's called the ridiculously resilient ridge that some people think is like a brick wall directing <clears throat> rain away from California. What do we know about the future and the climate connection? I want to get the others, too. Uh, well, she's definitely one of the... Cutting, you know, scientists on the cutting edge of figuring out what the water future is going to mean in California. And her predictions are that we're looking at normal being 30% less than what normal is today. And if she's right, this is normal where we're at right now. So we've got to figure that out. I hope she's wrong. Um, there's other, you know, there, there's lots of modeling out there, but I think the, you know, the feedback loops of, uh, the melting Arctic sea ice, the increase in tundra, you know, if we don't, if, if Paris doesn't work. Um, the UN climate negotiations the, in Paris. The, the right. UN climate nego- later this year, um, if we're not getting ourselves on a two degree trajectory, you know, I think things are going to change pretty dramatically in California. Um, and all I know is that it won't look like what we grew up with, it'll look different than that. Um, our, our water district is right in the, that most of the models, it's kind of in the, it could go one way, it could go the other way. I and mean, we've had some, you know, some of the water districts to the, in the northern Sierra are still, you know, counting on decent snowpack and et cetera on a regular basis. The ones in the south, not so much. And we're right in the middle. So we mm-hmm. don't know. Uh, it could go either way. Paul Winger, do your members uh, make a climate connection? Obviously, it's a large trade association, but do they see a climate connection? And what are they planning on? Yeah, I mean, uh, our membership, depending upon where they're at, we've got members in Santa Cruz and Napa that tend to be more of the liberal-leaning side of things, and we've got folks from other areas that are very conservative. And so I know one day I was interviewed by the San Francisco Chronicle, talked to the reporter for about an hour, she said, this is a very complicated issue. And I said, yes. And then we exchanged emails. And we talked for about another hour. Since then, she's been to my ranch for four hours to try to understand it. But after our long discussions, it said uh, the only comment uh, in the San Francisco Chronicle was, Paul Winger, President of California Farm Bureau, says climate change is fast upon us. We better adapt. And I had members wanting to quit. They wanted to quit because they said you admitted there was climate change. And I said, for crying out loud, climate's been changing ever since, well, even before man was on the earth. We know we have a footprint. We ought to do everything we can do to reduce the footprint. But I think there, again, is a great success story for California agriculture. 95% of all the processed tomato products produced and consumed in the United States are grown in fields in California, and a third of those consumed in the world. As you talk to the folks that make the tomato paste that is turned into that Chicago pizza pie. Can you source your um, tomatoes from China or, or from Korea or Mexico? And they said yes, but we'd have to plant them on twice as many acres because we get more solids per the field. So now you start thinking about carbon footprint, driving tractors through the field, the amount of shipping of the product to the uh, getting them to the processing plant, the amount of water that's used. If you want to think about cr- uh, climate footprint. We in California are doing it with the smallest carbon footprint of anybody else in the world. Uh, Ellen Hannock, climate and water. Do you see that are Californians making that connection, connecting the drought to climate? They are. um, And I think, you know, there will continue to be scientific articles and debates about 
whether any individual weather event like this drought is caused by climate change or amplified by climate change. What we can say for sure about this drought is that it's hotter than any drought on record. And that is very consistent with what the models are all predicting in terms of future droughts and the the future climate of California where the snowpack is not going to be the resource that it is for us now. And that's got implications for water supply. It's got implications for temperatures and whether or not we can have enough cold water for keeping salmon going and so on. So, so in that sense, it's a, it's a drought that is like a drought of the future and very useful for us to help get ourselves, get our act together for, for being able to live with this kind of drought more often. Helen Hannock is Director of Water Policy at the Public Policy Institute of California. Other guests are Felicia Marcus, Chair of the State Water Board, Paul Wenger, Head of the California Farm Bureau, and Marguerite Young from Ace Bay Mud. I'm Greg Dalton, and you're listening to Climate One. We'll be right back after this break. And now, here's a Climate One Minute. When it comes to our water, who's really using more than they should? Jonathan Foley of the California Academy of Sciences studies food production around the world. He says it's time for Californians to stop pointing fingers and start looking for new ways to work with what we have. Well, I wouldn't say anybody's wasteful. I think people are doing exactly what they were told. Um, we've set up policies over the years that were incentivizing certain kinds of behaviors, and uh, we, you know, we're going to have to think differently in the future about water and asking what do we get for every drop? How much nutrition can we deliver to an American household or somewhere around the world for every drop of water? The good news is that while we've been maybe inefficient in some places around the world, uh, there are huge opportunities to be more efficient. The typical Israeli farm is about 10 times more efficient than the typical American farm in turning water into food. So that's the role of technology. That's the role of innovation. That's the role of maybe some better market signals that water isn't a a free good. It's something of public good and has to be accounted for accordingly. And, uh, you know, we, we have to think very differently about water in California. We have water competing for food, for nature, for energy, for municipalities, and we'll have to choose. How do we prioritize those things? But fortunately, the envelope for innovation to push how we can get all of those things out of our water system is enormous, and we're in the most innovative place in the world. Jonathan Foley is executive director of the California Academy of Sciences. He spoke with Climate One in 2014. Now back to Greg Dalton and his guests at the Commonwealth Club. Uh, Felicia Marcus, as the top water cop in the state, what are you planning for <laughs> for a hot and dry 2016? <laughs> What's next? What other tools do you have? Well, I would say more of the above. Uh, in some ways, I think uh, conservation is the cheapest, fastest, smartest thing we can do to extend uh, resilience, particularly of our urban areas. We're going to keep doubling down on recycling. We've put out um, hundreds of millions of dollars in low-cost financing. The water bond that the public in California graciously approved gave us tools to really try and retrofit ourselves on conservation, recycling, stormwater capture, cleaning up contaminated groundwater basins, both for you know safe drinking water for the communities that don't have it, but also uh, to be able to use those groundwater basins to store recycled water and captured stormwater, which will help make us more resilient. So we're, we're running on all cylinders now, and we would do more of uh, the above. We're also preparing 
part of why we're asking for more and more information uh, in information orders uh, so that we can better manage a very tight system, which is already on the razor's edge. Um, the, the conflicts between fish and farmers, fishermen and farmers, but also farmers versus farmers is very heated as the water becomes tighter. And so we're trying to double down on getting the kind of information so we can make those decisions as transparently and as faithfully to the law as we can, but it's just going to be tough. I think urban resilience is really uh, the linchpin, I think, for a lot of it, not just for the economy and for urban users, again, who in many cases are hundreds of miles away from their water source, so it's a, it's a challenge to get folks to realize how vulnerable they might be in an extended drought. I, I think as it, we need to be doing it anyway to prepare for climate change, and we had been putting that on deck even before the drought was called. And we already at that point said, given what we know is coming in two, three, four decades where we lose our snowpack, coupled with the fact that we know we'll have population growth, we're not going to export our children. And uh, I used to say eat our young, but people thought that was too crude. (laughs) (laughs) I hung out with rugby players in college. That was probably a mistake. Soylent green. Yeah, soylent green, right. That's funny. The... um, It was filmed in a Hyperion treatment That's plant right. in the, under the secondary galleries. But hey, sorry, ask, I'm digressing. Ellen Hannock, <laughs> Australia went through a seven-year exactly. drought, made the big dry. What can California learn from Australia? Lots. And I think, I think actually we already are learning some of those things. Um, I've heard Felicia say that one of the reasons that the board has, and the administration has pushed the urban conservation issue is because Australians said we waited too long right. during our drought before we really got serious about it, and we regretted that. So let's, you know, we should prepare sooner. But I think there are other things, and you know, the issue of water rights that came up. The, the Australians reformed their water rights system, simplified it. There's still priorities in there, but it's simpler than ours. And they've got a good information management system, and that, they have a much easier way of trading water. During droughts, and that got ag through the drought in Australia in a way that, I mean, with much drier conditions than what we have now. So, I think there was a few suicides mixed in there where people had their prop, their water mm-hmm. rights taken away, and they had no way to farm. And uh, so, talking to people from Australia, it wasn't as easy. I guess if it's your water right that was taken, and now you have no way to pay off your debt, for some people, unfortunately, they take the fast way out. But yes, there was some things done in Australia. But we're not Australia. We're California. And I take exception to the fact that we should, California, the most progressive state and the most progressive nation or one of the most progressive nations in the world, we are California. We can solve this problem. We're not Australia. They don't have snow capture capabilities, even though with climate change, less. But they are one of five Mediterranean um, climates in the world. But we're one of only two, California and the middle part of Chile that has uh, a mountain range for snow capture and rain collection and an ocean on the other side. Australia doesn't have that. Uh, the Mediterranean climate doesn't, area doesn't have that, and the south tip of Africa doesn't have that. But, Paul, are you saying that in a climate-disrupted world, do you think that some people might, might need to give up things that they've had for a very long time, all of us, and including farmers and some of the water rights they've had? For water a rights long? are being given up. Our water rights in Don Pedro Reservoir go back to 1853, and I have 16 inches of water. My water rights have been restricted drastically, and they've been, mm-hmm. you know, we also hear the term that user pays. Don Pedro Reservoir, uh, built by the city of San Francisco in connection with the farmers from the Turlock and Modesto Irrigation Districts. There was no federal money and no state money that built that. It was the farmers and the city of San Francisco that built that. And the city of San Francisco is being limited. 
and the farmers in Turlock and Modesto are being limited because of environmental restrictions. When you need to go get a permit, somebody says, oh, by the way, we want some of that water. The public didn't pay for that water, but through government, they extricated that water. That's why the bond was so important, because the bond allowed $2.7 billion for a beneficial use to where the public will now pay for that component that's for a beneficial use, whether it's for flood control, uh, recreation, fish flows, or other things. But up till now, not everything has been paid for by the government. Well, I, I might take some exception to that in the sense of we as one of the ways in which California is a progressive state. It's not in every factor. Certainly we haven't uh, implemented our system or measured it the way the other western states have, and it's more complicated, and I just think we could make it clearer. But California was the last Western state to, to measure uh, groundwater to have groundwater extract. management, but ours is going to be better, I think, ultimately, as it rolls through. But it, it, a great achievement and something that's uh, you know on us to do thoughtfully and well. Um, the public trust doctrine that we have, where the public does own this public resource, which is include, includes our fish and wildlife, and like I think we've. We've implemented it only in part since 1982 when the Supreme Court, the state Supreme Court, said we could. But there's a tension because what we are doing is, I think what Paul describes is a common feeling that folks have because they were there first and all of a sudden we're trying to rebalance it for the common good and that doesn't always feel right. I, I would change the whole dialogue. Again, I'm not a Pollyanna about this, but I think the dialogue of division doesn't really help us, what we need to do is figure out how do we have all of this? How do we figure out how to work together? Because people in California need it all. They need food. I think we need to be far, we need to look at food security as as important as climate change, population growth, and then because I interrupted myself, I didn't get to food security. We should have folks in urban California really valuing what we have in California as this incredible bounty that we can produce for ourselves and for the world. It's a, it's a great resource and instead it gets Dismiss and figuring out how to shepherd that and help those farmers that are now farming by iPad if they can afford it and being very thoughtful about it and figuring out how to do uh, win-wins with the ecosystem and have everybody feel heard versus everybody going to their barricades is how we come together as Californians, which is something we can do. We are in this together. We voted for it together, and it was a totally all of the above, something to do all these things we need to do versus picking one and dismissing the rest. We won't conserve our way out of it. We won't store our way out of it. We've got to do all of it. So let's go to our audience questions. Welcome. We're talking about almonds and lawns at Climate One. Welcome. Thank you. Democrat uh, Henry Pura and James Gallagher of Sutter County representative said that conservation alone will not solve the water crisis. It is critical that we build new above-ground storage, which we've not talked about. Over the last 30 years, Millerton Lake has released 15 million acre-feet of water, enough to meet the city of Fresno's water needs for 100 years. They release it to the ocean because it does not have the capacity to store it. The proposed sites in Temperance Flat Reservoir in Fresno and Madera counties would have the combined capacity to store more than 3 million acre-feet of water, enough to supply 6.1 million California households every year. What is the status of above-ground reservoirs since we, I think, passed a $9 billion bond? Felicia Marcus, does California need more dams? Yeah. I mean, we need more storage above-ground, below-ground, big and small of all kinds. That's what we put in the Water Action Plan a year and a half ago. Each given project has to move forward with its planning and with its co-sponsors, as 
Paul said uh, one of the things in the bond was to pay for the public benefits, but there need to be uh, ha at least half of the project has to be paid for by local sponsors, and they have to make the proposal, and it's got to go through the safety and other kinds of reviews. And so I'm sure the ones that get their stuff done first have a fighting shot. Los Vaqueros was the one that got done after the CalFed process. I'm sure they're working on it now, and they are doing the work on it, and they'll make the proposals. They got their permits in six months last time. So it just depends on the project proponents getting it together and having it pass muster. More storage on the way. Next question. Welcome. Uh, Carter Brooks, artist and philosopher of climate art. Uh, the issue of freedom of choice and mar responding to market forces has come up a few times in this conversation, and so picking on almonds a little bit. To what extent is allowing that everybody have their free choice in this way and respond to the market forces a little bit like building houses in a flood zone, right? When you build a tree, it needs to get water every year. Are there things that should be done about either collectively uh, having aggregate limits or quotas, or is, are there other ideas around how to work with this problem of free choice and market? El Ellen Hannock, limits so on free market. I, I think you choice. put your, your finger right on it in, in, in your question, which is that we need farmers need to know how much water is theirs to use. And part of the challenge that we've had is that our groundwater has not had that kind of regulation. And so there's been very serious overdraft and, and excess use in, in some regions, not all. And so with the new groundwater law, that's basically going to put in place a process for getting to sustainable use. And, and then farmers should make the business decision based on market conditions of what, what crops to grow right. rather well, than governor. A real quick question I just got to yeah. add there, and what she said is very right. We, and with metering, it's going to come. We want to make sure you know how much water you have, 30 inches a year. If we're sitting out under a shade tree, your water demand is X. If you're going to run a marathon, it's greater. Mm. Our plants, their marathon is the heat and the wind. And so if we have a cool summer and not a windy summer, we don't need as much. But what do we do? Get halfway through a growing season, we have a hot, windy summer, and we lose our crop. But we don't only really limited to a certain amount of water based on historic water use. But excuse me, my plants are running a marathon. They need hydration. And that's the problem when they set strict limits and it's funny when people from the environment say, we've got to have strict limits. Do you know what the environment does? The environment dictates my future. But a then shouldn't you be planting be less to deal with that freeboard, right? The future is going to be more uncertain and volatile is what climate scientists would say. And is the wets are going to be wetter, the dryers are going to be drier. We're going to have more volatility. Right. It's going to make it harder for farmers and regulators to do their job. Well, next we need cushions everywhere. Really. Next question. So you brought up um, the fact that we need more cushions, especially as we get more volatility with uh, climate change. And so two of the cushions might be groundwater, we've talked about, um, above ground storage, we've talked about. But a third one, which I think was brought up in relation to the uh, Australian experience, was water transfers, making those mm -hmm. easier. Right. My understanding is that water can have a very different price depending on where you are and who you are. It could be, you know, Paul mentioned $2,000 an acre foot for some ag, other ag maybe paying $100. Most municipalities, it's on the order of 1000 I mean, there's a huge range. So uh, what could we do to sort of compress that range a little bit so that everyone has a more reasonable incentive to be more efficient and we can really use the water better and spread it around? So, Felicia Marcus, the water prices depends on who you are and where you are. Well, I think one of the first things, you know, and this, I think, is one of the great lessons that we can take from Australia, is they did spend the 90s. It took them a decade. A lot of the things people talk about take a long time to do, metering and measuring everything. So they actually knew what went in, what went back out, 
et cetera, they also had trued up their water right system. You don't you keep the system we have and trued it up. True it up. The Colorado spent 20 years adjudicating theirs. Part of the slowdown sometimes in transfers here right now is just that you've got to prove the water's real and that it's not paper water, and there are a million different rules. I'm not going to defend how complicated the rules are by any means, but you, you really could have a more vibrant market here if you had better data and then rights settled as between each other as opposed to the way we have it right now. That might be one, one step we could take in a decade. Ellen Hennick? Just on prices, some of the reason for prices being different is just because of the infrastructure needed in different places. And if it was an old system, it was cheaper back then and dollars back then. Do you use gravity or do you use energy to get the water to you? All of those kind of things. But the market actually will help equalize prices at the margin when folks uh, trade. That, that, and Australia has much clearer, more transparent prices than we do right now in our market. Let's have our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you. Uh, Governor Brown is actively promoting the construction of two immense tunnels to convey clean Sacramento River We weren't going to get through this hour without water. talking about those tunnels. That's... I should hope not. <laughs> uh, to divert uh, a massive amounts of water uh, bypassing San Francisco Bay and down to uh, Clifton Court. Uh, those of us who live in San Francisco at the bottom end of the largest estuary on the west coast of the Americas are very concerned as they learn more about this that further water, clean water diversions bypassing the bay will have devastating impacts on the ecology and the economies of San Francisco and Bay. And your question is, are we going to build the tunnels? Uh, what is the status of this project right now? Well, Felicia Brown? Most of those things are, Felicia you know, the, that project was excluded from the bond, excluded from the CEQA stuff. So that, that, that's not <clears throat> happening. I'm not the best person to talk about because it it's a, a project that's going to come to us for a, a permit. But there's one misnomer in that that I think is important to clarify for people. One issue is the plumbing. Right, Because right now, water is taken from these giant pumps at the bottom of the delta that mess up the salmon's reverse flow, can draw smelt in. I mean, those pumps are probably the last place you would put them if you were going to start again. Um, and then the, the project is about looking at an additional place of diversion further up near the Sacramento River, which has more water, where you could take from that when it was bad for the species down at the bottom, and you could take from down there when the species were up there. There are concerns about having flow that stays in the delta, but the issue of how much water in total might not necessarily be different, and that decision is something that sits with the state water board as we do our Bay Delta water quality standards. There we go. We have to end it there. Our thanks to uh, Felicia Marcus, chair of the California State Water Board, Ellen Hannock, director of water policy at the Public Policy Institute of California, Paul Wenger, president of the California Farm Bureau Federation, and Marguerite Young is a board member at East Bay Municipal Utility District. You can join the conversation on Twitter using our handle at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Thanks for coming here at the Commonwealth Club, and thanks for listening online and on air. Thank you. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer, and Alyssa Kerr is our assistant producer. The audio engineer is John Rieger, with help from Will Llewellyn. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.